Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Building Scale. Scale. Hey listeners, it's Will here. Our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. If you've ever listened to our show, then you know that the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. So if you suspect technology is your weak link, then book a call with us to see where we can help maximize your company's IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. Today's guest is the CEO of AR Homes, CR Hero. CR has spent 25 years with, within Fortune 500 companies, driving innovative business strategies and supporting the required stakeholders' change management to evolve marketplaces. AR Homes is a 70-year-old brand supporting luxury home design and building through leveraging the AR way in local markets to set the standard for luxury home building. CR speaks nationally to advance the industry, regulations, and best practices to adopt credible improvements to the design, performance, and value of new homes. CR has got a whole bunch of education here, so so hold with me here while I explain to you how amazing he is, but he has earned his bachelor's of physical science at Arizona State University, go Sun Devils, uh, a master's in environmental science from Governor's State, doctorate in engineering from Illinois Institute of Technology, and a master's in philosophy also from the greatest university in the country, Arizona State University. And with all that said, CR, welcome to the show. That and a buck 25 gets you coffee. Nice to be here. Bingo. Guys. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I'm I'm really excited about this. Our uh, pre-calls that I've had and the other calls I've had with you have just been exciting. It's just a random call of like afterwards. I'm like so excited. I'm all jazzed up and jacked up. So super stoked about this episode. Uh, so I said all this great stuff, but tell us kind of your origin story. Uh, how'd you get into the industry? And then tell us about AR Homes. Yeah, I mean, you can hear it in the education. Um, I'm just nosy, right? I, I I like to understand how things work. I'm super curious. Um, and so, you know, biology, chemistry, engineering, philosophy, it's just, hey, how does stuff work and go from simple to complex, right? Chemistry is pretty knowable. Engineering, you start making some guesses and some assumptions. And once you get into philosophy, you go down the rabbit hole and never come back out again. And the nice thing about that is it trains you that you don't know what you don't know. Right. And, and it's such a service to people in business is to be keenly well aware to check your ego and understand that you think, you know, 10 percent and the rest of the 90 percent, you damn well better be on your toes for. And so, you know, the my whole career is a testimony to being dumb, but asking good questions. I mean, OK, that I'm dumb. I love being dumb. It's gotten me. Lots of places in life, at least that's what I think. It's amazing what people let you get away with if you just are okay with guessing. I uh, frequently think, uh, you know, the stereotypical, like, husband doesn't know anything and the wife does everything. It's like, I I think it's built into us a little bit um, biologically to just be dumb or pretend to be dumb, at least. Before (laughs) we heated up the mics, we had that discussion, right? You you spent the weekend (laughs) without good supervision and, and, uh, and, you know, the cops were called twice, the paramedics once. 
And then Will, you know, extolled us with his belief that his child will be safe throughout his uh his formative years. And we had to let him know that, you know, no, you get, 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 a, get a fast pass to the ER. We are by genetic design dumb. Yeah. It's just what happens. Dirt bikes exist and, and they're a lot of fun. Let me live in uh, my bliss. Let me live in my bliss. We're let, brother, we, we hope you're the one in 10 billion that gets away with it. Good luck, brother. <laughs> um. All right. Uh, in many of our conversations, uh, you have many, many sound bites that are going to be great for the podcast. So thank you for that. But one thing that you would, one quote that you'd mentioned was uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, t- tell us how, what that means to you and what you think about it and how, yeah, how that you is wish kind you of shown the, through. I would just wish we were the ones who made that up. No, it's, I know. It, it becomes, whenever you transition from being a subject matter expert, right? So I'm good at this and I can do this and I'm proud of this to managing people, which means I'm going to get more done, but I need to get 12 people on the same page pulling in the same direction. You quickly start to understand that that transparency of intention, that collaboration, that coordination, um, that becomes everything. And so that's a that's the foundation of a good culture, right? Is trust, alignment, shared vision, shared purpose, uh, clarity that the each subject matter expert contributes something different and it's not threatening to the other people that can be good at something different. Um, all of that to create a safe, productive, high performance, accountable um, team is something you just struggle through from when you first are allowed to start playing in management till, you know, the time you get the opportunity to run companies. And the longer you do it, the more you realize that your best ideas don't mean anything unless you execute them well. And that was my big shift is, is I went into management because I got really clear that I can only do so much as an individual contributor. And, you know, I'm an introvert, right? I, I would sit around and hang out with my bulldogs and work remote all day but I need um, a culture and a team to accomplish the change that I believe is possible in this world. And so you get into culture pretty quick. You get in and and understand that 50 people or 50 different people each Monday, and they're going to be different people that Tuesday. And uh, you've got to be able to flex and create, create opportunities for people to work together and to leverage their unique individual contributions, but do it in a way that it serves the overall intention of the group. So I'd love to say I'm great at it, but if you want to talk about the things I'm dumb at, culture is is the thing you can never get great at because it's different every day and the challenges are different every day. And and the best thing you can do if you're going to manage culture is recognize that the category of things you don't know, you don't know is always massive. And you've got to be a student for the rest of your life of good leadership. I, people obviously uh, are a core component to culture because inherently that's how it works. So when you have, you know, when you're hiring key personnel, like, do they follow our core values? Are they, you know, do they believe in the vision? All of those components. Uh, It's easy to say those things. But one thing you had mentioned is you had not hired a key personnel uh, for, you know, extended period of time here because you, you found somebody that had the skill set, you know, the technical skill set, but did not have the cultural skill set yet. Uh, talk you, about, what language talk am I allowed about, to use, Justin? What language am I allowed? Use as much language as you want to use. This is so uh, the, you know <laughs> the quick and easy way to say that is we don't tolerate brilliant assholes, and and that's just the shorthand for um, 
culture is about the ability to work within a team and support each other and and get the best out of people and that's usually done with a lot of carrots with some accountability behind that but if somebody just comes in with a big stick and a chip on their shoulder and or worse thinks they actually know answers you can ruin that trust and collaboration and teamwork so quickly and so we had a i came in um and we were six months out of having a key person so one of my one of my priorities in, in in taking this position to run um ar homes uh was to fill that vacancy and you know we we grabbed super high-end uh um uh reps to bring us candidates and we sourced 200 down to 10 and you know did really intensive uh in-person interviews and and you know have a really robust structure and invested you know, if you think about how what everybody's hours worth, the whole senior management team and part of the board of directors in in reviewing this top person, and you know, a thousand hours in and a hundred thousand dollars of time invested, we had one or two good, good qualified candidates that we said no to because the role and this is just a poke, right? An IT role, right? That the IT people um, uh, can be thorny, right? Because they it's a it's it is a very difficult job and there is very um opinionated systems and therefore very opinionated people to run those opinionated systems and uh and and you know finding a soft-sided uh it leader is, is a tough putt and so we found some amazing skill sets but but not great skill sets married with great leaderships for that entire team um until we found our, our current vp and you know he's everything we wanted but I was very, very proud that we all looked at each other as a senior management team, weren't capable of doing the job, had invested tons of time and money, had a candidate that would do the job and looked at each other and said, no, we're going to go back to the well to protect the team that we've got and protect the culture that we've got. That's got to put a lot of strain, though. I mean, that's a long time to not have a key personnel, right? It like, tells you who you are when you- so much strain on the, the rest of the team, though, right? I mean- it does. And it's it's why we, you know, when I've said, you know, transparency and collaboration a lot when I've talked about culture, um, to me, one of the keys to culture is to be super transparent throughout an organization as to the whys. The what's, everybody talks about the what's. Here's our EBIT. Here's our sales revenue target. Here's the software we're implementing. Here's the sales strategy. Here's what we're doing for uh, search engine optimization, like all the what's are super easy and all the subject matter experts can rally around the what's and you get lost in the forest for the trees. It's the why's. It's who do we serve? What do we believe our value proposition is? How do we compete in a marketplace? How do we serve our customers in a credible way that differentiates ourselves from the marketplace? Those are all why's. And that's where um, I think a lot of people fail in culture is they lay out strategies and they don't stop to explain how it all intertwines and it all interconnects and it all serves the goal of, of being of service to your customer who has other choices in the marketplace. And if you're not super clear that no matter how good your product is, there's six other good enoughs out there, you are not positioning yourself well to be competitive in the long term. So, okay. So 
you've given a lot you obviously have a stance on culture and <laughs> I do and <laughs> it's a line that's not fuzzy for you which is great right uh i think that's that's uh that's a breaking point for a lot of companies when put to the test like you're being put to the test um that you do actually hold your line how do you figure out who right or wrong is do you is it a gut feeling or do you go or is it more scientific for you no um and and that line just to be super clear that line isn't something that i'm hard on on because i think i know the answer i have a very strong opinion about how important culture is and then i'm a big fan of behavior based interviewing techniques so it's not people telling you what you want to hear it's here's a relevant problem here's a relevant change here's a relevant and and you talk about how people uh give me a time not philosophize with me but tell me how you've handled this underperformance issue tell me how you've handled this uh this person who uh doesn't work well with their peer set see so in the behavior-based interviewing process which if anybody's not familiar with that it's just you ask people concrete examples of traits you're looking for that are key to the position that they've done and how they've succeeded or failed and importantly when they failed what they did about it right because you want to see how adaptive they are and how much they learn so these behavior-based interviewing techniques that i'm a huge fan of you load half of the interview process with leadership questions and that was it 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 changes a lot because if you ask somebody you know, tell me about how you manage the performance problem. They're going to give you the book they read on the plane over to the interview process about managing performance. If you're like, tell me of a time where you had somebody that had the capability but wasn't delivering 100% every day and you didn't get it out of when you had to fire them and then what you learned from that. And then tell me a time of when you got it out of that. And what you like, So you force them to talk about the bad and the goods and how they really did it. And it, you show your cards really quick when you just talk, especially when you ask people about their failures. I'm a big fan of being surrounded by people that are okay failing because, you know, I, I came up in big international companies and you'd hire, you know, Ivy League and engineers out of Purdue and these people that have never failed once in their entire life. And you're like, well, what happens when I break your little eggshell? Because I'm gonna, you're gonna fail are you going to learn and grow or are you going to fall apart because your ego got bruised? And so I love people that um, have failed and took it as a learning opportunity. So that's a bit of culture, but more importantly, lacing your interview process with how you deal with peers, how you deal with your bosses, how you deal with management um, and really getting people to talk about their challenges and their wins and losses to me, it gives me a lot of insight about how they're going to work within the culture. And then I know what my culture is. I know, you know, make mistakes, try to make them once, not twice, learn from them, do root cause analysis, solve the root problem, grab people that are smarter than you, you know, work through teams, work across departments, acknowledge failures, right? I mean, there's things I want to hear from people and we all know there's lots of really good leaders that start with their ego and um, end with their ego. And and I'm just, I'm not that person. 
Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm in, I'm lucky and I self selected myself to be in a service-based industry. You build people's homes where they take care of their kids and they rest after a tough day. And it's their biggest investment of their life. You damn well be, be a servant leader and postured to make their lives better, not to serve your ego. And my, me and my team, I'm super fortunate to do that. Have you done any personality tests? <laughs> yeah, we've pre-talked about all this, and you're gonna make me tell how how what weird what what flavor of strange I am is what Will wants to hear from me. <laughs> we love strange. We're we love a big weird. fan of strange. Yeah. So what flavor yeah. of weird are you? <laughs> so 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 I laughed. So I'm an introvert, right? And and when I'm tested, if you do like Myers Briggs, and I love Myers Briggs. Um, I'm an ENTJ, which is the classical executive, you know, extrovert, thinking, judging, E-N. Uh, I don't remember what the N is, but, you know, I'm, it's I'm, something. I'm just, it's something. I'm this very arm's length, rational, uh, intuitive. You know, intu- is it? No, yeah. that's not. That's N. not. That's N. Is it? Yep. Oh, I'm intuitive. Intuitive? Would yeah. it be intuitive? Hey, well, that's for introverts, so they could they had to use a different letter. Ah, Correct. Okay. That's right. So it's so what's fun about that is because I am I am as introverted as people come, but I'm so clear that um a good idea doesn't do anything unless you execute it well that I I fake being an extrovert so much on Myers Briggs, I come out as an extrovert. And and it's just because I it being an introvert in business doesn't suit me. In my personal life, like I've got three friends and a bulldog, right? I'm I'm very introverted, but professionally, you know, I'm more than happy to be on a stage, um, extolling the strategies and the opportunities uh, for the team to create value and to have great careers. Because if you don't, they don't get aligned, and you don't get those opportunities. And being a a change agent, like you have to enable people to feel safe and to embrace change, which is the last people, the last thing people want to do. So, uh, so in Myers-Briggs, um, the cool thing about if you really get into it, and I was, I was luckily, I worked for a, a big company called Lafarge. It's a big international French company and they really invested in their junior managers. And I was a junior manager there and they invested and sent you to Duke university for a couple of weeks and just cracked your skull open and looked inside and <laughs> gave you tools to deal with other cultures, to deal with other personality types, to understand who you are and how people see you and how other people are different and how you can help work with them. And Myers-Briggs, I think is, you know, DISC is good. Myers-Briggs is good. They did this one thing with it. I don't even remember the name of the test, where they just tested you on how much you change when you're comfortable and when you're not comfortable. And it just kind of lets you know, under stress, this is what your people are going to see from you. This is what your peer group is going to see from you. Do you want that? And I'm, as you w- would imagine, I'm super responsive because I'm I'm a big nerve. And so on a good day, I'm a different human being than a bad day. And the bad thing is, is, is people know when I'm having a bad day. The good thing is, is people always know I'm genuine. Like nobody ever has to guess about who I am because I share it openly with everybody that's in my circle and the the, the cashier at the grocery store and the person taking my coffee order. Transparency. Anyway, yeah. Transparency. Well, that's the way we'll spin that. But, but the cool thing about some of these is like, if you just read what ENTJ is, 
there's a lot of a-hole CEOs that are ENTJs, right? Because it's this very arm's length bureaucratic, um, you know, I'm sure some of the most biggest tyrants that are running corporations that people hate are ENTJs. It's the prototypical CEO personality trait. And so you could be really distressed. But if you do Myers-Briggs right, there's all sorts of subtleties. Like there's, here's how your personality works, but here's the way you're being an E, here's the way you're being an N, here's the way you're being a J, right? There's a there's an application to that. And the good news that makes me sleep well at night is I'm an ENTJ, but I really care about my people. You know, I really care about the human beings that have families and that depend on the, the company that you're responsible for fiscally to take care of their medical bills and to buy themselves dinner. And um, and I, you know, that, that certainly resonates with me. I, I really do care. And I, I it really does way heavy on me that responsibility and honestly i think if it doesn't like if you don't lose sleep because you're responsible for people's lives get the hell out of management you're not supposed to be there so those are some really great insights uh but when you were hired on right what did you what was your sort of plan or strategy when you first got hired on and a lot of companies, when they hire a CEO, they look at the first 90 days, right? Start making changes. This is where you make your mark, et cetera. Yeah. What did yeah, you do? So, I had to go, so that is exactly. So I was, um, so the founder of AR Homes is Arthur Ruttenberg. He passed five years ago. Um, and they absolutely did an executive search for somebody with my pedigree. I, I, I look at um, existing uh, businesses, I look at the opportunity for those existing businesses and I try to close the gap, right? I'm very much a change agent and it's what I've done my entire career. I don't know how I got that lucky, but it's it's a, a wonderful thing to be. But they specifically sought me out because I was a change guy. And um, and they wanted the the company to pivot to be successful for the next seven years. They, they're a 70-year-old brand and, and they were incredibly innovative and, and created um, a business around that innovation. But this industry evolves pretty fast. And if you're not constantly innovating, um, you will quickly be left behind. And so, you know, having the founder be passed for five years, they needed to catch up. Um, having said all that and, and having them hired and expected me to really drive um, a new vision for the company. It's a strange company. It's it's a it's the leading luxury home brand in the United States, and it franchises its builders. So it's a brand and a design house and subject matter experts that we call the AR way. Right? There's a way, but as opposed to like a um, what I came from, which is there's a corporate hub and then there's divisions. There's a franchisor and then there's franchisees, but it works very much like a corporate hub and divisions where we support and enable best practices and we leverage brand and we, we uh, you know, every builder, if there's a dozen key core competencies they have to have, they've got eight of them and those eight offset the four weaknesses they've got and their four weaknesses are different from builder to builder. Our job is to be that source of supplementing the weaknesses. And, um, and so it's a really quirky, unique um, approach to business. And it's a seven-year concern and, and it's a bit of a golden goose. And while it absolutely needed and continues to need to evolve in strategy and in service and 
in interacting with customers in a credible way as they've shifted, especially post-COVID in this space, um, I sat on my hands for 90 days and exposed to running in and doing all this change and listened and did a listening tour to the, with the builders and spent time with the staff and asked a lot of dumb questions and got in trouble with the board, quite honestly, because they're like, hey, we hired you to change anything and uh, you haven't changed everything. And the answer is, is I didn't understand the value proposition well enough. I didn't understand the uh, receptivity of change. And the things that were obviously broken were fundamental to the business that when I started changing that would change our ability to execute. That if I came in and started changing things in the first 90 days, it would definitely have been you know, ready, fire, aim. And I would have broken a lot of important stuff that I'm still going to break. I'm just going to break it carefully and purposely and have a support system and a change management process as I'm breaking it. Um, but yeah, it's 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 tough on somebody like me who is wired to be very receptive to change and is rewarded by it and got hired and is, and is, is looked at by my board of directors as the source of how can we make this company what it needs to be for the next 70 years right now to sit and not do that? Um, so it was very painful to me personally and the best decision I could have made um, because that's an ego decision. And just like we've talked about, if, if your ego's in front of you and you're doing this for yourself, um, you, you're you going to make some bad decisions. And, and ultimately, I'm in service of the customers who build our homes and the builders who we support. And the right thing for me to do is listen to them until I had an educated enough opinion to understand what to change when and then how to change it. And I'm still going to mess it all up, but I'm going to at least be a little more eyes wide open, a little more um, proactive as I break eggs and make omelets. That's like if you need to get your arm or leg broken, you want the doctor to do it, not don't do it in your garage. Um, you know, like, oh, I need to re-break the arm to set it or do whatever it is. It's like, yeah, it's better if you use somebody that actually knows what they're doing in comparison to your brother. At least that's what I found. I, agreed. I had a doctor break my jaw. And so it, it, it went better than just taking the left hook in the bar. Exactly. See, that <laughs> makes tons of sense. Also, uh, to your point, yes, ego uh, ego gets in the way uh, far too often. Uh, even, when all. We don't think, know, even when we don't think it's getting in the way, it's, it's often like getting in the way. Uh, you had mentioned, uh, so your, your people obviously talking about culture, uh, but you also have a very hands-off probably isn't the right term, but you have more of a, I just trust you to do your, your thing. And like, you're responsible for this part of the business. You're, you know, CMO, you're responsible for this part. CFO, you're responsible for this part. And where I, you have that overarching knowledge, you, uh, tend not to get in it like in in deep at least that's kind of what we got the vibe from you where it was like i want my people to uh be the smart people that that are there to do their job yeah there's so many books and so much lip service that talks about hire people smarter than you yep sweep the sidewalk so the people that work for you can carry the load um trust and nobody actually does it right it's and everybody I, says it though everybody, everybody says, says it, it. I am naive enough to do it, right? I <laughs> I am idealistic enough, um, you know, because you got to be kind of a naive idealist to be a change guy or girl. Um, and so I, I am naive enough to go, no, that's right. That's the right thing to do. Now, it's a massive balance. Like if you don't do deep dives every so often to make sure 
you understand the the PL and somebody's managing your accounts receivable and and there's this liability out there that 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 nobody wants to admit to. So if you don't deep dive, nobody's going to put it on the table. Like you've still got to be smart enough to jump into some details. But my IT guy is a thousand times smarter than me on IT. My ops guy is a thousand times smarter than me. That my marketing person is a thousand times smarter. Like if I didn't know that and I didn't get the hell out of their way, like I don't serve the mission of the company. Um, they are absolutely smarter than I am. They are absolutely better at their job. They know the answers better than I do. My only job is probably the knitting together of all those experts into a cohesive fabric um, and, and and to be the the person that listens carefully and ultimately says, well, we've got 20 really, really important things to do and the resources to do 10 and, 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 and prioritize those. I think that's what a good CEO does is vision and then knitting the massive disciplines of whatever you do together. Right. And, in you know, in most businesses, there's a massive HR function, there's an IT function, there's an operations function, there's a marketing sales function. And, um, and you need, you need to know just enough, um, to help them integrate, but, uh, you know, don't, if you are the person that whose ego needs to be the either involved in everything or think that you're going to add the most value in each of those subject matter expertise, all you're going to be is the bottleneck to your business moving forward. And so once again, the, you know, get out of your ego, understand that good ideas don't mean anything unless you execute them well. And the only way to execute well is to have very, very smart people capable of giving a hundred percent in, in micromanagement and bureaucracy absolutely prevents it. And by the way, you know, I've got a board of directors and I've still got accountability that I like, I'm still in the way a bit um, because I've got a, you know, I got to get alignment that, you know, I can, I can sign up to a certain amount of checks, then I got to go get approval. And I, you know, I have to, I've got responsibility for a strategy, but I still have to communicate and get alignment on that. So there's still always going to be bureaucracy, so the best thing you can do is cut as much of that fat out. And the fat usually is the CEO, right? And, you know, whatever the leader is, and if you're a division and you're, you're usually the problem in management. So the most you can get out of your way to get the most out of your people um, and then recognize that, you know, they pay you for a reason, check in, make sure there's nothing going that's a surprise and making sure that everybody is aligned when they have, especially different subject matter experts, that there's alignment and synergy of purpose. And if you're lucky, like shut your computer off at 7 p.m. on Friday night and go have a nice weekend. Um all of that, yes. I I it's, it's all I I I took down a bunch of quotes for you know as I build out content for this episode. I'm like, oh my God, this is never ending. So um I hope our listeners are are taking it in. If not, re-listen, go back, rewind. Listen again, rewind, listen again. Um, so we talked about culture at nauseum. So what about processes? Obviously, change management, being a change agent requires process to be in place or new processes to be built or uh, new technologies to be installed, all kinds of different things. W take us through some of that. Obviously, you get the right people in the right seats, doing the right things at the right time. Now, yeah, um, how do you get how do you get these processes, especially coming into a uh, 70 year old company that has processes. It's not like they don't, uh, you know, they have some. So obviously coming in, changing those, 
And how does, how do, what does that look like when you're, you're trying to instill new process? Yeah, there's probably two really important pieces um, in different buckets. The, the, the process, and you can, you can tell, I love to steal and plagiarize good, good ideas from other people. Like the process of process is hope is not a strategy, right? That, that, that anytime that you just think that this employee gets it, this customer gets it, that it's intuitive why we'd roll out this new software package, that it's intuitive why the sales agent would adopt this change in the way they interact with their customer and leverage this new CRM, right? Like anytime you think that that's the case, that's hope is a strategy. And so your, your process of your process has to be explicit. Like if this is what success looks like, write it down. That's why we call it the AR way. We write down, this is what our customer journey, optimal customer journey should be. Here's how it moves sequentially through the sales funnel. Here's where we learn. Here's where we document. Here's where we fill software. Here's where the software directs us. Here's where we follow up, right? Like all the things that are in your subject matter experts, they've got to get written so that it's a recipe that you could hand it to somebody that's never done the job and have the same amount of confidence that it, it gets executed as you've got giving it to the people that have done it for 30 years because you know that they've got certain capacity or at least you hope they do. So, so processes has to be explicit and written for a complete, naive, unskilled person, especially because the second part is when you're changing, even changing to better has a ton of resistance because people feel safe, which is a core human need, feel safe in doing things that didn't get them in trouble before. And change represents opportunities to get myself in trouble, whether that's in trouble with my boss or getting fired or not making as much money, whatever your reward compensation process is. And so changing often the mistake of people who do change is they leave the old way in place and they just start trying to bend it down to the new path. And it's often very, very resisted because people constantly just want to go back to what they're rewarded on. And, and for frontline employees, it's about, hey, I'm good at this and I've been successful at this. Don't take this away because then I don't know if I'm going to be successful. For the ownership, it's I got seven figures in my bank account that says this is how you run this business. Don't not run this business this way because I've been very well rewarded and very successful because I ran this playbook. And don't tell me to run a different playbook because I already got proof, emotional proof that this is the way it works. You know, and one of the things that we talk about a lot is what got you here won't get you there. And, and that's this, you know, that's the very hard reality of there is nothing in business that's static because if you're good at it and you've made money, people will emulate that and figure out how to narrow those margins and take your market share. That's just the nature of capitalism. I love that about capitalism, right? A cell phone, the first cell phone cost $1.8 million to make one phone, right? It, it, it took economies of scale and iterations to scale that out to a $200 thing. And then let's hear it for all the companies that, that, that buy for um, people's attention um, that Apple makes Android better and, you know, uh, 
Google, I think, has a phone out there. Like, I mean, everybody kind of fights for do people really want the better camera or do they want an open set platform or do they want a closed platform that doesn't get viruses? And, you know, what's the latest app and blah, 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 blah. I, I, I'm i an Android person and I get yelled at by my Apple friends because apparently my text bubbles don't change the right color. I don't green. know. Green. We're greens. I think all three of us are green. So, uh, you know, that's what it is. <laughs> so so the 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 big piece of, of change is breaking emotionally, physically, the old way of doing things. Like you have to, like if you're going to go from A to G, you don't go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You burn A to the ground and you create a pathway to G, but you don't bridge them because nobody will walk across the damn bridge. You land a helicopter on one side of the cliff, you push people into the helicopter, you take off and you land them on the other side of the bridge. And so it, that change management is just like, especially you guys are, are deep in tech. We know people that have rolled out no ERPs for three years, right? Because they just won't not do the shortcuts in the systems that they know. Here's what they do. On February 14th, your accounting system goes dark. I'm going to give you this new accounting system in January and start populating it. All new businesses goes in there and the whip, the work in progress gets worked out of the old system and will run dual and it's going to suck for, for 60 days. But on the 61st day, that goes dark. You only have this. And anything that's still in whip is going to get dropped over in that process. And you do it. And it's going to be a really painful March and April will be a little bit better and May will be okay. But if you don't do that, if you don't do that sort of change management where you want to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you go A, B, A, A, B, C, B, A, right? You just like, you just never progress and, and you get some milk toast version of E when you're done, you never get to G and E kind of sucks. And you probably should have stayed at A burn it down, develop the change management process and force the change. And I know that sounds terrible, but if you're changing, you're changing for a business plan because it's cheapest and easiest to stay where you're at. The only reason you change is because you're no longer a viable business and the value proposition and your ability to be smart and your ability to serve your customers. Something's wrong that's driving you to change, whether it's a sales process, an operation process, an IT process, admit it to yourself burn the damn thing down, start again, and just be thoughtful about the change management. And the change management is, here's how we're going to bring this other system up, train you on it, and have it in parallel. You almost always have parallel systems. But this system goes dark. And then like, oh, it's going to really hurt. Let's not do March. Let's do April. Pull the freaking plug. Do March. Suffer March. Because you'll never get to April if you don't. Humble opinion. As, uh as a guy who's changed a lot of companies. This the I I hear what you're saying, but how does that work when you look at it in like a more of a franchise model, right? Obviously, this is where you're sitting at this point, and I start thinking like that's like sounds like corporate makes tons of sense. Like, yo, this is it. Like, there's yo, you either you're Top doing down, it it's or so you're much no easier. longer here. Like, that's yeah. what's up. In this scenario, it's um, there's got to be a little bit different, perhaps. I don't know. You yeah, tell when me, McDonald's <laughs> rolls out the McRib, everybody rolls out the McRib, right? That's, well, that's because uh, it's the McRib. Actually, I would not recommend the McRib by any means of the imagination, but I get it. I suppose that's true. But I think that's 
very like that's like saying like now McDonald's is gonna like completely shift and and make fried chicken. Like I feel like it's just so different. Like it's it's so different in comparison to like, hey, here's a patty that you're also gonna defrost and throw on the griddle or whatever, however the hell they do it, uh, or steam it, and then sell it out just like you did the Big Mac. You're asking a really fun question, and and what it will force you to learn is, are you in your lane? Mm. Because if you can make a change for the betterment of the people you serve, your customers, your franchisees, your employees, you know, your your shareholders, whatever that is, whoever you're serving with that change, and often it's a combination of them. If you can make that change, congratulations, you're in your lane. If you're contemplating something you can't change, you're not in your lane. So it, it's going to tell you really quick, like, are you up somebody else's business and interfering or are you in your lane supporting them the way you're supposed to? So in my example, as a franchisor, I developed the business framework for my franchisees. Here's your here's your accounting software. Here's your operating software. Here's your marketing software. Here's how we're going to do SEO. Here's the way we're going to do a, a customer journey. I absolutely should be giving them best in class operating software and I should be absolutely giving them training to leverage that and to pull content from them locally to support SEO and, and local marketing dynamics. The go-to-market, how they handle a, a qualified lead, how to qualify the lead, how to nurture that lead through the funnel, that's them. I support them. I I, I, I have a best practice that I recommend, but the, the local market will tell them Hey, my buyer is, you know, for some reason, particularly coming out of Northern New York and has this preference and it wants this sort of thing, right? They've got a, they've got a, a particular flavor of weird in their customers um, that they serve. And I'm too far away to be good at helping them with that. And if I tried to, they should ignore me. So I was out of my lane. And, and I think a lot of times managers in one silo uh, you know, operations and marketing never get along, right? They 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 just don't. And so <laughs> operators always want to tell marketing what to do and try to get out of the lane. And marketing always want to tell operations what to do and get out of the lane. And if they can't, congratulations, you're out of lane shut up. Like have best practices, make suggestions. But if you can't implement change, it's because you're not in your lane is the short way of thinking about it. Um, and And it tells you something to me really, really important. No matter what you do, I think, a servant leader is the right posture. I think it's the win-win-win. It's the, if I'm here to help you, you voluntarily will play nice with me in the sandbox. And if you won't, I'm doing something wrong or you're the wrong partner for me. And so it allows you um, to be honest about, hey, this is going to suck for 90 days, like in the case of rolling out a new piece of software. Um, here's the why behind the what here's the what here's we're going to hold hands. And I'm going to walk this with you and I'm going to cut it off at this time because you won't get A, B, C, and D benefits. If I don't like, like the, your people are going to fight it and you're going to fight it and my people are going to fight it and I won't be the best partner I can be. So that idealism is let's talk about who we should be. Let's be honest about where we're at and we're going to move there. And if they can tell me no, um, then I'm probably not in my lane. I, 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 I'm sure there's an exception to that rule where I should be doing something and, and my builders can absolutely go AWOL on me. 
Um, but if that was the case, I would actually handle that structurally. I would change the nature of our business relationship because if I can't be of service, I shouldn't be in this business. I think once again, I'm, I've been guessing for the last 27 minutes of this conversation. Stop being a philosopher and just say what you say. <laughs> Burn it down. Make the change. <laughs> there, we the change. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Okay. So uh, part of your, so you guys make luxury homes um, and around the process uh you had we had talked about in the pre-interview around uh changing people's mind and um like the type of questions that you have to ask right it, commercial versus residential mindset and oh about sophistication yes sophistication I was, I was like, how much was i drinking when i was talking to will last time i don't even know what he's talking about yeah, yeah that, happens. <laughs> that, that does happen i can confirm to that <laughs> so <laughs> So um, there's a thousand examples of this, but let's just talk about the average. I, I I try to get out of my own damn way, which is me being clear that I'm not my customer. So I, I create a caricature, um, which serves me, but you've got to be careful with it because you have to know it's a character. I, I create a character named Susie and Susie is the decision maker in a luxury home buying process. She's 52. She's got three kids. Uh, you know, th th they make this kind of income. Like I, I know who Susie is and Susie makes way different decisions than I do. And, and so serving Susie is about understanding how does Susie go to market? Why does Susie go to market? What does uh, Susie see in the market? What does Susie wish she saw in the market? And how can I play to be the best choice of the choices for Susie? That's, that's a core, um, voice that allows me to be out of my way. And I'll, I'll get back to your question about the difference between residential and commercial in a second. And then there's a second gut check, which is I not only kind of think about Susie as my customer, I also think, what would I do if it was my grandmother? And I do that because innately, my grandmother doesn't know all the crazy biology, chemistry, engineering, philosophy, doesn't know all the building science, but I love my grandma. And I know my grandma, if she was going to buy a new house, could live better, like design, durability, health, resale value, right? That 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 as a subject matter expert in homes, I know I wouldn't buy from that builder. I would buy from that builder. I'd tell that builder to do this. Like, Lord, help the people that, you know, I built a, a custom home and nobody wanted to work with me on that, now, right? Because I'm very opinionated and it's rooted in 20 years of being in the industry and being kind of a building scientist. So I have these two kind of background gut checks. Who's Susie? And am I serving Susie? And would I, what would I tell my grandmother to do and to ask about? So I, I think about that as a trusted expert who cares, right? And those are really important, right? So trust is about, have I given them a reason to understand that I'm there, I'm there as a servant and their interests are, equivalent or more important than mine expert do i actually can i actually bring something to the table besides two winks and a snap that uh that hey don't you want to buy a luxury home for me today right the these car salesman thing and then the cares is am i doing it for the right reason right am i doing it because here's a here's a better choice spend 50 cents and get two dollars of value 
don't spend two dollars and get 50 cents of value right all that stuff that you do because you this is what you tell your grandmother to do or fill in the name of the people you take care of so um so that's the posture i take and and it's difficult because susie is bombarded with lots of stuff that are very first cost fit and finish and she saw this kitchen in this magazine and she she saw this uh, this dining room on house and her friends got this cool uh, two-story fireplace. And like, so she's got this collection of wishes and hopes and dreams for her home. Um, and not all of them reflect, Hey, you know, what are our trades capable of? What is that hanging inverted uh, corner inside your house that opens to open space? That's 10 foot glass sliding partitions what does that cost you in steel work that you know that is a two hundred thousand dollar corner is it worth two hundred thousand dollars to you or can we put a six by six post in that corner and it's now a twenty thousand dollar corner right is is that worth a hundred is not having that six by six post worth one hundred eighty thousand dollars to you that's a real example by the way right so those are the sorts of things where you know a commercial operator um you know somebody who who runs commercial real estate thinks in operating cost. I'm going to spend more money on the better uh, air conditioning system because it costs me 20% less in operating cost and, and therefore the return on investment. It's going to last me 20 years. It cash flows in seven years. So I get 13 years of benefit from making a smart informed decision. I'm going to put in these dual pane argon filled low E windows. I'm going to pay for an extra two inches of insulation. I'm going to go from two by four to two by six. I'm going to put in a metal 50-year roof instead of a, a bitumous asphalt 15-year uh, roof because I'm going to be here that long and I'm going to make these decisions. Or when I resell this house, these investments that when you build it right cost me 50 cents and cost me five bucks to, to rehab it. And the market is growing to appreciate this aspect, energy efficiency, health, durability, right? Post-COVID, a lot has changed in the way people interact with their homes, whether it's embedded technology, um, whether it's uh, durability and particulate control and mold uh, attenuation or fresh air management. Like there's all these peripheral stuff that are coming into the market that commercial kind of adopts are the early adopters of the ROI stuff. The, hey, SEER factor in HVAC, which is uh, seasonal energy efficiency rating, right? That that higher SEER is a smart business decision. These low E windows are a smart business decision. Um, you know, this more durable material in my counters and my paint and my, you know, this is smart. Luxury buys cool early and pulls it into the mainstream and creates the economy of scale. So luxury residential is ring doorbells, right? It's uh, programmable thermostats back in the day. It's um, it's the voice activated, come in and say, I'm home and their lights turn on and their, their jacuzzi tub starts up and, and, uh, uh, Barry White starts playing, you know, it's all that cool oh, stuff. Oh, it sounds that, lovely. <laughs> you know, that used to be $20,000 to walk in and have your stuff on an iPad where, you know, you pushed your, your fireplace kicked on on a button and your, your stereo kicked on a button. Now it's 20 bucks, right? So, so luxury, um, brings things in from the fringe and then it allows it access to the rest of the market. And so I think one of the things that I kind of have come, I, you know, I, I've worked for luxury. I've worked for 
what they call move up, which is people that uh, have bought entry level and moved up to something nicer. And I've built entry level homes. I've built all of it. And having primarily a, a influence position in the industry at luxury, I'm very keen on helping these economies of scale make good decisions for what I'd want my grandma to be able to afford at entry level move up by creating awareness in economies of scale into that industry. So it's a fun part about being in luxury and being a building scientist is I can work with our supply chains who don't, you know, luxury is super fragmented. Like most luxury, you know, $1.4 million builders build three, four houses a year. And so their audience, the supply audience is like, it's super difficult for them to pull these, you know, polyurethane spray foam insulation back in the day or, or these luxury um, components that higher end would differentiate and afford into the market because they're doing it onesie twosie where AR Homes is a brand. We build more luxury homes at that price point than any other brand. And so it's an honor and a responsibility for us to be thoughtful about that and how we can create both value for our buyers, but also evolution for our industry. And so I, you know, nothing makes me happier than to participate in um, our industry closing the gap between what we are and what we could be. Because what we could be as an industry is so substantially better than what we actually are, right? Cell phones evolve pretty quick. Even cars are evolving pretty quick. But homes and buildings, because they last so long, right? 150, 200 years, people make that decision every seven to 10 years on average, which means that it's not something that they're turning, that they're looking for innovation from. And because it's at a, an emotional kind of Maslow hierarchy of needs in the safety zone, they look at like, what made me feel safe in my grandma's house? What house did I grow up in? And so there's this pull against innovation because of the way Susie buys homes to feel safe and to raise their family in isn't forward-looking, isn't innovative. It's, it's emotional, it's core, it's nesting. And so I've got to, if I'm going to make them get better, I have to lean into telling them stories of what great looks like and hoping to inspire them to make those choices. And commercial does that fiscally. And um, residential tends to do that um, through stories of better. People are still competitive. They still want to live better, especially at this price point. And so giving them a credible story of this is what great looks and feels like, it helps. That's like keeping up with the Joneses, right? I mean, like that's, yeah, that's but hey, my neighbor's got the white picket fence, so I need the white picket fence. My neighbor's got the new uh, Cadillac. I need a Cadillac. What You know, whatever it is. I'm using, those are both very aged uh, examples, by the way. <laughs> but it, it is a slow, slow process in the materials and physics behind construction has grown in the last 30 years in leaps and bounds. And so it's not enough. The, the Joneses the Joneses are why we still build. I think the most generous category you could think of homes is, is they're probably what we should have done in the mid-1970s, what we're building today, right? We're at least 50 years behind. And, and, that, and that's wow. generous because if you look at a picture from the 20s and a picture from 2023, um, the only difference is, One's in black and white, and it's an older pickup truck in the front yard. The framing, the 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 strategy, the materials, the architecture, it's really, really similar. And you know, please show me your 
you know, show, show me your communication device in the 20s to your communication device today, right? I mean, look look at the car and its capacity, right? I remember, I'm old enough to remember um, being poor and having an older car and going and get a rental car for business and travel and have cool things like a backup camera and then a Bluetooth where my phone would talk to the car and it'd play my own music and it'd answer hands-free, like, that was crazy innovation. Now, like it's ridiculous not to have that at the, the lowest cost entry level car. And, and so there's these drivers experientially for people to evolve and adapt to embrace a better quality of life. And almost every market position, except the most expensive one, which is real estate. So it's, it's an amazing opportunity of amazing frustration for somebody involved in shepherding the change. Um, to inspire people to make more informed choices like they were my grandma to demand better for their families. So I'm in the fight, but we have a lot of work to do. I, I, I think one, I think that the backup camera might be like required at this point. Like, I, I don't know if they make cars without them now, but that, that change happened real quick. Like that was, that was not that long ago that most cars didn't and now they all have it. So that makes yeah. tons of sense. Uh, it's a lot of mindset shifts. That's that's. I mean, that's essentially what you're saying. As as the change agent of 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 housing, uh, you know, doctor change agent uh, of housing. Um, it's a lot of mindset shifts. Not necessarily just the buyers and the Susies, right? <clears throat> but also like all the people that like you're obviously engaging with in the company as well as in then in the industry. That obviously you have a bigger message for that. Which yeah, and what's so powerful. And, you know anybody that's in the industry that's in the supply chain. So you know the the HVAC manufacturers that can make an air conditioner system that senses occupancy, that measures its maintenance, and can send a, an alert to your HVAC technician that your air filters are dirty or your charge is low or like like the things that everybody out there, whether they're selling faucets or HVAC systems or water treatment systems or two by fours are shaking their monitors right now because they know that they've got these amazing innovations they can't get in the marketplace um, because there's this paradigm of to make it cost effective, I need to build 10,000 houses a year with this. To build 10,000 years, I need to make it cost effective and I can't break that. I, it, and it's because our industry doesn't do it. And what needs to happen is people like me or the, the big boys in the top 10 um, need to commit the volume to create the innovation. I mean, that's how Apple did it. That's how Chevy did it, right? It's the only way those innovations happen is they committed the volume to building what we should. Um, you know, I built a house out of insulated concrete forms, ICFs, bulletproof, thousand year structure, airtight, watertight, um, the most amazing way to build a building ever, isolated, insulated thermal mass, which means it, 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 it drastically reduces heat gain and heat loss. And it does crazy things for physics, crazy things structurally, super impressive, absolutely is a building science the way you build a home. And it's cost neutral if it was sold and installed by skilled trades at the same rate lumber is. It would be the same cost to get literally 10x more performance, 10 times. And the only reason, and it's been around for 20 years, the only reason it doesn't exist in, in mass quantities is awareness and people demanding better. 
And it's to your example, like people, once they got a backup camera and didn't have to really guess and hope when they're parallel parked, um, they demanded it. And nobody's doing that in these esoteric things like, hey, what's behind my really pretty walls? If they knew that they could have something that's super strong and airtight and watertight and bulletproof and lasts longer and more durable and doesn't mold and like resistant to seismic movements and like hurricane, like it like in climate areas where there's forest fires or seismic activity or hurricanes, like this thing, this little ICF thing changes the whole world. I'm one of like 50 people that have an ICF house, right? It's just not common. And it's ridiculous to me, except for Susie doesn't even know to, doesn't know what she doesn't know. And, and it's super cheap to use the way we framed houses for the last 200 years, because there's a trade base and a supply chain and a known kind of ability to execute and modify in the field and so it's low risk high safety and and we we stick in our rut and you know my job is to figure out how to solve that i can't wait to see this bunker by the way oh come on it's it's the prettiest <laughs> bunker you ever see by the I way i bet you it is on top of the I mountain looking at looking at seattle it's it's love it's it love it love it love it all right cr doctor of change i think that's what we're going to start calling you i will answer uh, to it um, our time is, uh, running low. So we've got to go to our last question. If you were to go back in time 20 years, what would you tell yourself? So as a philosopher, don't think, I don't think about that all the time. Um, you know, the first answer is, is, is my whole life. I always wanted to start over. Like, just let me keep my brain and start over. Like I, I, I do, I do so many different things, right? I'd, I'd have so much different adventures. I'd, I'd avoid so many mistakes. And my first short answer is, is now when I do that, I'm so grateful and I've made terrible mistakes and I've had, you know, I was raised like a raccoon. Like there's lots of pieces in my life. <laughs> but like, I am so grateful for the position I'm in now and the opportunities I've had and the life I've got that at, at that kind of philosophical level, I wouldn't want to change anything because I'd never land here, right? And And I couldn't, and as soon as you change your trajectory, I, I can't imagine having a better life than I have today. So I am incredibly grateful. Um, and I'm more than willing to do all the silliness that I've done and make all the mistakes that I've done and suffer as much as I've done for my stupidity to be who I am and have what I've got today. Like I'm super lucky. So having said that, the thing that I've learned the most um, in the 10 years, so 10 years ago, I would have been working for Meritage Homes. I was the vice president of innovation. I worked for a guy named Steve Hilton, who founded Meritage Homes, who grew it from a luxury custom home builder in Scottsdale to the seventh largest production home builder in the country. He was incredibly smart. And we butted heads constantly. Like We had a very tough relationship because I was the change guy. And he was the CEO and I didn't understand what being a CEO was. And so like I was pushing for change. I was pushing for innovation. I was pushing to get Susie the tools to um, make better choices. And, you know, if you look at marriage's trajectory while I was there, they did amazing things and they shouldn't have let me do half the stuff I did. I did crazy stuff with marriage. We did deconstructed homes and walk people through the skeleton. Like we did crazy stuff. I loved it. But I didn't understand culture and leadership and the broader, um, you know, I was, I was in a hammer and everything was a nail. And, and I've 
you know, it's you, you, you appreciate your parents after you become parents. I appreciate that CEO after I become a CEO. And so 10 years ago, if I could have had a broader view of business, if I could have had a broader view of challenging the optics and managing a board of directors and investors, and because it's publicly traded, like if I could have understood the broad nature of running it all, um, I would have actually changed a lot more. I would have been so much more impactful because <laughs> I could have spoken the right language. I could have, I could have managed the reasons he was telling me no. Right. And so the, you know, to kind of wrap all this stuff up, the best thing you can do if you want to make the world a better place is to set down the picket sign, put on a suit and tie and walk inside and shake the hands of the HR person and get involved with the business because it's changing the business from the inside, from understanding that you have to, I tell them this to my people all the time, I've got to protect the ship so that you all have something to, to cross the ocean in. And as we do it, each of you have a role to keep the ship as strong as possible because when we hit storms, like, like all these things are my responsibility as a CEO. And when I was just a change agent, I was just a hammer, hammer and nails. And so 10 years ago, I wish I would have understood Steve Hilton better because I would have gotten a lot better done with Steve. Because um, we just butted heads all the time. He threw me out of his office in really rough ways every three weeks for 12 years. Like, like he to this day, I don't think I'm on his holiday card list. Um, oh, sad. He, if I you're love listening, him. you gotta get you gotta get CR back on the holiday yeah, yeah, yeah. list. Come I love him. Now. I think he respects me, but I was a pain in his ass. And in retrospect, I could have been a much better tool if I had been a better partner in understanding the breadth of business. And so I'm super appreciative because after that, I went and started a, you know, a, a, I was the CEO of a, of a stand-up uh, zero energy building, building with structural insulated panels. And then I got the opportunity to be CEO. And I've learned so much um, that informs a change agent um, on how to go about closing the gap between what is and what it, what could be. Um because you've just got to understand as much as you can about HR and finance and marketing and operations and customers and supply change as possible. Cause the more you can run a business, the more you can change a business. And so my limitation 10 years ago was I was really good at identifying what we could be. Um, but I wasn't as strong in understanding who we were so I could manage that change and honestly, the burn it down and start over. I was trying to go from A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And now I understand burn it down and start over. Burn wow. it down and start over. <laughs> I think, management. Don't, don't give them a chance to stay on their side of the bridge. I loved the answer. And I expected nothing less from you, doctor. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, and Justin, take us away. Yes. Uh, so uh, obviously, we're going to put all of your social, all that stuff in the show notes. But if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm super track downable on on uh, on media. But if yeah, you can get me through AR Homes. Uh, you can reach out to me on all the social media platforms. Uh, LinkedIn is always super easy. Come and come and be on my LinkedIn and and help me change the world and let me help you. Happy to. Love that. Love that. Uh, I know I had a blast. 
This was tons of fun. Will had a blast. CR, you're smiling, so that must mean you had at least somewhat of fun. Uh, I do I it again anytime, brother. Awesome. I hope our listeners had just as good of a time. Uh, and until next time, adios. Adios. Thanks for listening to Building Scale. To help us reach even more people, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or on social media. Remember, the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. And our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. So if you think your company's technology pillar could use some improvement, book a call with us to see how we can help maximize your IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. And until next time, keep keep building building scale. scale.